Welcome to Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic. And on this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses that's been recently released on the Nintendo Switch, and uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the new film based on the children's book by Alvin Schwartz and with art by Stephen Gamble. Um, this is probably going to be another little shorter episode. I'm recording again on Sunday, and um, I just ran out of time on, you know, being able to sit down and kind of put a, a long episode together for you guys. But the uh, few announcements: the show is now also on Podbean. Uh, it's going to be on Podbean and SoundCloud um, right now uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, it's submitted to iTunes through Podbean, so hopefully uh, we will also be adding iTunes to uh, platforms to where you can go and listen to the show. Um, I may eventually get rid of SoundCloud, so warning to all of you uh, listeners that are listening on SoundCloud. Um, I'm going to see how well the show does on Podbean, and uh, if it's growth surpasses the growth on SoundCloud, it's going to be just financially uh, more beneficial for me to just move everything completely over to Podbean versus keeping both of those uh, services alive when one is not really serving a purpose other than just to host the episodes. Um, you know, money is is tight, so you know, paying for two hosting services can get pretty expensive after a while. And I think with Podbean, I will have the ability to do uh, premium content episodes that if you wanted to pay to listen to them, you can, um, which is something I've wanted to do uh, with maybe some like commentary tracks for some films and, um, and some TV shows. So uh, I'm still toying around with that idea. Nothing's going to be on there yet. And like, I, like I've said in the past on previous episodes, this main kind of format will still always be available to anyone for free so just stuff that's kind of going on moving forward to keep in mind and things that I'm thinking about for uh, the future and uh, you know ideas that kind of help grow the podcast whatnot so I uh, just wanted to kind of let everybody know um, SoundCloud users don't worry I will definitely make an announcement either here on the podcast or on Twitter so if you're not following me on Twitter, go ahead and jump on over there so you can see for any updates that might get announced on there. But most likely I'll, I'll do an announcement here on the podcast saying that this will be, you know, the final episode or, or something to that extent. But uh, it's not coming in the foreseeable future. You know, it's, I'm going to give it maybe a couple months before I would make that final decision just to see how, especially if iTunes does play a factor, how much um, organic growth um, I can generate on those platforms versus what I can uh, generate on SoundCloud. Uh, for you who don't know, if you haven't listened to, if I haven't brought it up, or if you haven't listened to any of the episodes that I might have brought it up, you know, SoundCloud uh, used to be the place to host all your podcasts and then send that RSS feed to iTunes, and iTunes then would uh, automatically upload. But uh, apparently, there was an update right around the time that the podcast started that uh, caused some type of error with SoundCloud's RSS feed, and it doesn't seem like it really accepts um, a SoundCloud RSS feed anymore. So here's the hoping that Podbean works, and um, it might be something that 
it's probably going to become the the dominant one now as of right now all episodes are on both platforms so uh you know don't worry yet don't freak out um i know one of my listeners that i'm i'm friends with has uh, talked to me last night and they were like oh well please let us know if you're going to do it because you know that's what we listen to you on and if we need to switch uh services we want to switch services so we can keep up the date with with your with your show so um yeah um i think that's about all the the nitty and gritty uh business part side of the podcast out of the way but um so yeah it's it's gonna be another brief episode this week like i said kind of ran out of time um when I was going to go see Sarah's Stories to Tell in the Dark, didn't quite happen, and then I kind of saw it um, in the early afternoon on Saturday, and then I didn't really have time to record anything when I came back, and um, and I also kind of wanted to sit on it a little bit and ruminate about my thoughts on it, and uh, so and there was not a whole lot I managed to get watched within the week of the last episode. There is. Um, I'm not going to talk about it in a review aspect yet because I need to, you know, really sit down and rewatch it in full. But there is an interesting found footage that I kind of like. It's a little too short and, and um, kind of fails on the execution a little bit of the plot, or at least making sure you know what the heck is actually going on or why it's going on. Um, but it, it's a it's a pretty fun. Uh, found footage horror film that's streaming now on Amazon Prime. I bought it back on Vudu a long time ago, but uh, I've been revisiting it on Prime even even though I own it. Uh, it's called Classroom 6, and it's just a interesting found footage horror film. I, I kind of like any type of horror film that I, takes place like in a school. Uh, that's why I kind of like The Gallows. I know I'm in the minority on that. Um, but I don't know. I don't know why. There's just something I, I, I enjoy about it. I know back in high school I wanted to write a uh, horror story set in my high school uh, dealing with the zombie apocalypse now of course there's a show called Freakish that's on Hulu um, that is uh, kind of the same thing and so I, I kind of like that um, aspect quite a bit I don't know why I, I can't explain it. it's the same kind of the same thing that I like about horror films that kind of take place in the winter and isolation and uh, that's why season two of, of slasher was such a hit to me and uh, you know personally I don't know how many others um, really enjoyed season two of that show um, anyways uh, I'll do a full review on it eventually um, probably in October because I think I don't know if I'm gonna do an episode a day kind of brief 20 minute episodes a day for like 31 days of Halloween or uh, maybe 13 days of Halloween um, I haven't quite made up my mind it's going to just depend on how much I can actually sit down and, and record and talk about it but uh, it might end up in there um, or it might end up in a future episode of the podcast so uh, you know within the next couple weeks or so who knows uh, okay getting a little sidetracked but uh, I want to talk about uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses on the Nintendo Switch um now, Fire Emblem is a very long-running Nintendo game series that I never quite uh, delved into. I'm not a huge fan of, like, strategy games like uh, StarCraft or, or um, Red Alert or something like that where you kind of have units and then you've got to kind of plan them out and move them out and, um, you know, 
permadeath usually plays into a factor with it, but thankfully, at least with uh, three houses, the permadeath feature is optional. You can choose a difficulty that, that doesn't have it. So, um, But these are just going to kind of be my first impressions of it, because I'm only like 10 or 11 hours into it. Uh, playing under the uh, the Black Eagle house, and so it's going to require, well, it doesn't require, but it's beneficial to play uh, it multiple times to kind of get the full story, but I, I'm loving it. Um, I thought I was going to have a uh, hard time with the turn-based combat in the sense of, like, you know, moving, you can only move these four squares before you can even get close to attack your opponent and, and stuff like that, because, like, I've you know, I've been fine with RPGs and JRPGs. I've been playing them for extremely a long time. Um, I think going back as far as Final Fantasy VII might have been the first one that I was exposed to as a young kid. And then I picked up Legend of Dragoon on PlayStation, and I've been obsessed with them ever since. Um, but the animation style and the story and the characters are really well done. Like, I mean, it's... I've been playing, I've got other games in my backlog right now, and I've been meaning to like go back and visit them, and then I end up just picking up my Switch and playing Fire Emblem for like two or three hours. It's massively addicting. The characters are so well written. The story is intriguing. Like, I don't quite know exactly where things are going. I have some theories about certain characters and their motivations, but I don't know how that's going to play out in it. Um, but it's it's gotten a, kind of also like a very nice, like, Harry Potter aesthetic to it because you're a professor at a uh, school and you know you have to choose which house you want to represent so you have the, the blue lions the golden deers or golden stags I might have that one wrong um, I know Jade on Twitter would probably murder me right now for because that's the, that's the house she chose when, when playing uh, her run through um, but I, I chose with uh, uh, the black eagles with Lady Edelgard which is really surprising because I'm not much of a magic user when I play these games so if I'm building a character or, or choosing a certain type of class I usually just go with like a knight or um, maybe a paladin something that has the ability to do a healing spell but not much magic other than like light magic um, I've always been kind of more of a character that or run use a character that just is straight up melee uh, you know brute strength and then have an ancillary healing maybe ability or side character I can help out in that aspect. I, I don't know why, but uh, it's, so it's kind of shocking that I kind of picked the, the house that's mainly magic users. Um, so it's been a different type of playstyle for me, but I, I've been still really enjoying it, and especially since I identify a lot with the character Bernadetta, who is pretty much like me who does not want to like leave their room or leave their house and and could care less about being out in a group of people but it's really funny because she's also one of my strongest characters right now uh so and she and she's adorable she's absolutely adorable so um i i love the cutscenes as few as there are right now they're very well animated and uh i mean and it's just beautiful even just playing it on the handheld instead of even having it docked like I know that the handheld uh, is only in 720, and then when it's docked, it does 1080. But even in 720 in the handheld, because that's how I've mainly played it, is more in handheld mode. Uh, it's it's stunning. I mean, it's it's absolutely stunning. The voice acting is fantastic. Now, where it runs into a little bit of a problem, but I, it's not much of a gripe, is just the 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 lip syncing. Uh, you know, the the dialogue doesn't quite match up with the lips, but. Uh, you know, nine times out of ten, I'm, I'm reading it 
anyways uh, in the message bubble, so I'm not really paying attention to their lips a whole lot, but the characters are still beautifully animated and the world is lush. Now, what's a little bit sad, but I, I can understand it from the aspect that it's doing, you're really only stuck within the monastery or the school. It's the only place that you have that you can really explore, so it kind of gets old and it kind of gets dull in that aspect. But, uh, you know, it makes sense considering how the, the battlefield mechanics work, and it's mainly telling the story through the monastery anyway. So that's not a huge gripe. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit, because I'm used to more of the bigger, expansive uh, RPGs that you're more kind of world exploring. They may be linear, but you're going from point A to point B to point C to point D and seeing these different locales and, and getting to explore them a little bit. Um, so, uh, considering that this is the first Fire Emblem game I've ever played, I am absolutely loving it. It makes me want to go back and pick up the old ones for the DS um, and give them a try because if I'm enjoying it as, if I'm enjoying three houses so much i might enjoy those other ones um you know kind of my he uh being hesitant to play a game that's kind of out of my um comfort zone in, in the in the style of the combat um might be something i need to do because i i've really enjoyed it i've really appreciated it and i've really liked it so i can't wait to eventually beat it um i don't know if i'll do a full review until i've done either just the one house or if I've completed all three houses so I know the full story and the full context of the characters motivations and whatnot um, because that could take a while <laughs> especially if I think I saw someone spent 65 hours playing it and I'm not sure if that's just them completing the one house or if they completed the other two houses as well so uh, if you have a switch and if you're a fan of this RPG style games I would just recommend it anyways um, there's no way that this game doesn't score at least a 4.5 with me by the time I, I end it, unless it just completely butchers the story, uh, which I don't think it's going to do. So uh, definitely go check it out if you um, you know can get it on sale or can afford the full cost for it. I'd say pick it up. I mean, even if you're not 100% sure on it, but you like RPGs, you like good story-driven games, you like strong characters and well-written characters, this is a game you'll enjoy. So. Uh, that's going to do it for kind of my impressions on that. I've got plenty of other games to be doing impressions on uh, as I'm <laughs> juggling through so many, but uh, I have no time to play them all. Um, hopefully when I'm on my actual vacation in September, um, where I'm just not even having to worry about going into work, I'm going to definitely try to dive into some more video game playing. I've got a backload of screeners to try to get to. I've got emails I've got to answer. Um, I've been really falling behind for the months of June and July just because, as you guys know, I've, it was my peak season. So I know I've said that like a million times, and you're probably tired of me saying it, but it was busy. Um, all right, so now we're going to talk about um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the movie based on the uh, children's books uh, that go back. I, I guess they, I might have been born when they were first released or they might have pre the first one might have predated me uh by a year or two or a couple of years uh but i know these books were prevalent in my life like we had a copy of all three uh when i was growing up i've read them multiple times um i think even before i was a horror fan i read them like they were just good scary stories to read and so i was very skeptical 
of this film uh, when it was announced. Like, you know, it's how do you do justice to these um, collection of folklore and urban legends and stories that Alvin Schwartz put together? Um, and, and also to match the, the horrific art of Stephen Gamel, um, it, it's kind of difficult. You know, it's like how, how does something this treasure to your childhood and, we, and we've seen this kind of be an issue right now with star wars and star trek like things that we held um very near and dear to our hearts as children and now they're being adapted or they're being uh readapted or, or updated to fit the current times and certain changes don't fit with us and then we kind of have an issue and this kind of goes back to my fans versus creators uh debate um that i did on a previous episode you know how much ownership do the fans have on this material versus how much uh, leeway and um, creative ability do the creators have with doing whatever they want uh, with it? Because I think that there's a there's a fine line, um, you know. And I think that the movie does a very good job of walking that line while taking certain snapshots of these books and putting them together into a narrative that, that fits. Now, one thing that really confused me, and this is a very mild spoiler, I mean, it's literally up on the screen within like less than five minutes, so I mean, it's not a huge spoiler, but I was really confused about the the era that the movie was taking place into. Like, I assumed that it was modern day and that these kids were kind of just dressing as if they were in, you know, just doing costumes that were kind of more older and out of date. And because like uh, when you see in the trailer when Ruth is running to the bathroom because she's got the red spot and you know the spider leg kind of sticks out, she's kind of dressed in like a '50s outfit, and I'm like, okay, is this like a flashback or is this, you know, a, a school dance? And there it's like '50s themed or '60s themed. So the film is set in 1968, and I and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that was a good idea about it, but keep out kind of modern convenience or modern technology out outside of it. Uh, it kind of helps keep it grounded and kind of, um, for lack of a better term, more real. Um, it, it just, it made more sense. And once, once that kind of flashed up on the screen, cause like at first I still thought, okay, we're getting a, a, a prologue and then we're jumping to the kids, but no, it's, it's just set in 1968. And, um, I think it's very well done. Uh, there are some, I think political stuff in it but fortunately it was not um too overbearing uh and not too prevalent uh, i think the sheriff annoys me a little bit in some of his dialogue uh especially towards ramon the hispanic character uh especially when his car is kind of trashed by uh, a local group of townies that are are, are bad um, there is some uh, racial slurs on there and the officer still kind of has this weird suspicion about Ramon like okay your car's in the shop it's got this racial slur written on it it's uh, you know the tires were slashed the, the window is broken but you're the bad guy kind of like but again given the period that the, the film is set in it still kind of makes sense um, so it wasn't stuff that bothered me a whole lot but the the basic concept is that you have three high school friends and then they meet Ramon and on Halloween night they kind of 
they're showing Ramon this kind of old haunted house that has this, you know, legend. And Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is all known about legends because that's what Alvin did. Uh, he went and researched old folklores and, and visited people and, you know, heard those kind of old legends that are kind of passed down from generation to generation just by word of mouth versus being written down. And he compiled them into uh, short stories for children. And if you heard my uh, previous episode talking about the documentary about Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, um, it was kind of met with some backlash from parents and, you know, thinking that it was promoting Satanism and, and uh, you know, violence and, and horrificness towards children, but they're really cautionary tales. Um, and so uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back. I'm not sure which one it was in, uh, but... I, I definitely recommend you check out that documentary. It's not long. It's like an hour and 20-something minutes. But it's really cool and really interesting. Uh, and Alvin's son is, is uh, interviewed throughout most of it and uh, gives you a nice inter little interesting insight into uh, what his intent, what Alvin's intent was with, with these books. Um, so, you know, the local legend being that Sarah Bellows uh, would write these scary stories and, and tell them to the children, but then that also she murdered all these children and uh, and that she hung herself and, and that her ghost still haunts the house. And they come across one of her books and um, unleash her spirit. And so the uh, characters are then kind of written into the stories that are taken from the book, from the actual scary stories to tell in the dark book. So you get to see Harold, see the red spot uh the red room is part of the the dream story uh Mitai Dodie Walker um and there is also little easter eggs and references to other um uh scary stories like I, I think when Ramon goes back to Stella's house uh Stella is wanting to be a writer and she's all into the horror scene as well and she, uh he re kind of reads it and he goes oh so the pet turns out to be a sewer rat at the end that's pretty cool and that's a reference to one of the other scary stories where like a family goes to like mexico and they pick up what they think is like a chihuahua and they and they find out then later that it's a sewer rat um so i thought it was really cool there you know there's even the the worms crawl in the worms crawl out uh, song that that kind of has a little play into it as well and it's really well done um, the it's it's light on the scares for me uh, being a veteran of you know the horror genre for 20 plus years now um, it, it wasn't particularly scary to me but I was seeing it with an actual audience this time normally I like to go see movies when there's like no one there but uh, it was a pretty full house and there were a lot of younger kids to it and there were a lot of younger kids that were kind of getting tense and and scared and I had this young girl sitting next to me it was just like oh I can't watch I can't watch and so it it's it does exactly what the books did for me as a child it's a good primer it's a good introduction to the horror genre without kind of overly blowing it out and you know up in the gore to 11 and doing these extremely horrific things. I mean, there are some horrific stuff. The Jangly Man is is pretty horrific. I, and I've seen this conversation on Twitter a little bit about the CGI that's used in it. The CGI is a little bit weak for the Jangly Man, but it's but the Jangly Man's still effective. Like, it, it's still very creepy and terrifying, uh, especially for a younger audience that, like, 
these body parts kind of rolling around and they're all kind of constantly disjointed and you know he kind of like walks like a spider at some point and then his like head's upside down kind of reminiscent of, of stuff from the thing prequel from a few years ago so um you know not to go too much into the story uh, into detail in the story but you know the friends start kind of getting picked off one by one by the stories in the book they find that the book is writing the stories itself itself because they've released sarah's spirit and stella and ramon and augie and uh, chuck and ruth uh, are all trying to kind of prevent it from happening. Um, I think one of the coolest aspects is that they tried to recreate Stephen Gamble's art uh, from the books. Like, Harold looks like Harold from the book. Um, the, the big, I don't know what she is, but the big giant woman with kind of the strangly hair uh, and the weird kind of creepy smiley face looks exactly like the book. Um, the the uh my big toe kind of thing was uh, it looks like something that comes straight out of the book the only one that didn't kind of look like it came from the book was the jangly man but um when the head first comes down it does kind of match the Tai dodie walker um uh picture a little bit so they did their best and that's i think where this film really succeeds is is and i'm not going to be able to pronounce his name so i'm just going to call him the director the director and Guillermo del toro uh, and, and the writers and the practical effects and special effects teams, they did their best to emulate the style and the spirit of the book. So I have to give them a lot of credit for it. And uh, I think it's set up perfectly for a sequel. It was a little bit disappointing because what they set up for the sequel, I thought they were going to have kind of revealed by the end of the movie. But I think that they want to try to see if this can become kind of its own franchise. Um, and, and kind of be something that can be not necessarily a yearly thing, but something that can be done and still done to entertain children. There's still plenty of stories that they could adapt for it. And even if they didn't want to kind of continue on the, the, the story of this film, I think it, it, it's, it's fine. It's definitely one that I'm going to pick up. I think the kids were great. Um, there were some backstory moments that they could have expounded upon a little bit more. Like they had me kind of leap into some theories and uh one theory in particular that like in in retrospect i'm like yeah that wouldn't make sense but um there are certain things like stella's mother running off that i'm like oh this could be something but then it kind of turns out to be nothing and i i wish they could have done a little bit more backstory on that um it's a it's a tight movie it doesn't give a whole lot of um growth not necessarily the characters all have growth at least the main characters have growth um but there's a lot of um kind of missed opportunity in the sense of fleshing the world a little bit more um they do a good enough job they do a great job actually with telling the cerebello's backstory um i really appreciated that kind of got some um, session nine vibes when they kind of visit the the psychiatric hospital uh later in the film but I, I, th I still feel like it could have used some, some exposition, some kind of more fleshing of the background of the world. Um, and But, like I said, I think it's set up perfectly for a sequel. And if they want to continue that story, I think I'm, I'm there. Like, I, I'm going to see it. Um, it, it it's, what makes it work is what made the first Goosebumps movie work. Is it's reverent enough 
while still taking things in a different direction for the audience and to give them something that they aren't expecting. So uh, I have to give it a lot of kudos, a lot of credit. Uh, I think the audience I saw it with all really enjoyed it. Um, I know the younger uh, kids were getting scared and that's that's the purpose of this movie. I mean, this is something I could take my, my niece um, to see maybe in a couple of years I don't know if she'd be ready to see it now I think she would get too scared of it right now but when she hits 10 or 11 or 12 this would probably be right up her alley I mean I, I know she likes goosebumps and, and goosebumps right now have been a little bit too scary for her and she's 8 um, and uh, I, I know I can't remember if I've shown her the movie I think we've tried to watch it and it got a little too too scary for her when she was a little bit younger but she does like the books and I think that this is a, a book series I would want to introduce her to and a movie I would want to introduce her to because uh, it, it, it's good it, it's wants to it's a helpful step to kind of the best way to put it is my my friend Maya shout out to Maya who was messaging me last night about watching the first it and she's not a horror fan and her husband playing a very cruel prank with a um, particular paper boat uh, and uh, she and I were, were talking last night because she was asking about the, you know how things were going with the podcast and talking about it and you know she was hoping I'm going to do an episode on it chapter two which I'm most definitely going to be doing an episode on um, and this and she says she's li like listening to some of the horror episodes I've done um, because she's not a horror fan she's a little too chicken to, to do horror but she can at least now kind of have conversations with people talking about horror films and and because she's been getting informed opinions from me and she uh i've known maya for God, five years now or some something like that longer than five years it's probably been more almost close to six or seven years at, at this point actually um yeah, i've known her husband and, and her for that long um and they've never really done the horror scene but uh, she was I was telling her she needs to get into it and I think that this is kind of a good primer if she was able to survive it I think she could be able to survive scary stories to tell in the dark um, and I know she's going to be watching it chapter two so we'll we'll see uh, we'll see how she handles that one but you know it's a good it's a good step it's a good tip your tip your toe into the into the water as the guys at the at, um, horror movie podcast uh, Wolfman Josh and, and Jay of the Dead and uh, oh gosh why am I why am I forgetting Dave's uh, little moniker um, was it Dr. Shock? I can't remember uh, they would do episodes about kind of kiddie horror you know horror films that are or young horror films that are meant for kind of being exposure to the genre without you know absolutely tearing their minds apart so um i i recommend it i think on, on a grade scale i'm going to give it let's see a 4.5 out of 5 um you know there are some things that i think that they could have done a little bit differently i, I think i might have seen michaela mention this on on twitter that she was kind of more of expecting an anthology and I can say that I never got that from, from the trailer, but the idea of doing it as an anthology style in, in the vein of trick or treat, I think would, would work well. 
if you have the right framing device and and in a sense this movie is kind of an anthology uh, story but it but it's not I mean like it's it, it doesn't tell their their own stories and then have a framing device the story is straight through and the the characters are drawn into the different stories of the book whereas an anthology is going to tell kind of their own stories with their own characters but something that then interconnects them through that framing device that i've talked about in in previous podcasts um so i think if they had the ability to or if they wanted to or if they kind of wanted to say all right we're gonna gonna remake this but not not necessarily in the sense of like of a, of a remake remake we're we're just going to tell it in a different way we're going to go with a more anthology aspect uh a la are you afraid of the dark which i'm praying for that movie to eventually ever get released i know they've pushed it off and then i know that they're relaunching the tv show but like that was one of the fun things about are you afraid of the dark was you would have different stories every week and and the kids were telling the stories and i think that that could be an interesting way if they wanted to do a sequel or if they wanted to do a fresh take on it uh if if for instance the film is not successful and then they kind of want to wait a few years and try it again as we've seen with other franchises uh, in the past um i think that that would be a cool route to take it but i'm not upset with anything that they've done in this movie um they they did a good job the young actors are really good um it's shot very well the scenes that are dark that need to be dark are dark they're not uh, impossible to see what's going on or or know what's happening and there are some really cool shots uh, the the um, wardrobe scene where chuck is hiding in there trying to scare augie is very well done and they do have and it, there are legitimate moments of tension especially with the my big toe um part of the film uh when Augie is kind of like trying to see if the th the corpse is out there and uh you know and ex trying to expect or trying to anticipate where it's going to come from because i know i was going oh it's going to come from this angle or it's going to come from that angle and uh and it managed to surprise me now one thing also i did see that was i think a complaint from some other reviewers but i think uh john squires at bloody disgusting uh you know hit the nail on the head with with kind of tearing that argument apart was this was very much also jump scares um none of the jump scares particularly worked for me but that's because um i've seen so many horror films i'm kind of expecting them to come when they come now certain ones where they're loud noises and stuff like that it's going to get me because anything like that's going to catch you off guard but john pointed this out perfectly out on twitter the book has jump scares itself it literally instructs you when to jump and scare your friends when telling certain parts of the story so and you got to mind or remember that this is geared towards a younger audience and not even the younger audience like not even the 14 to 17 year olds who are going to the pg-13 ones and uh driving you nuts by being on their cell phones and talking it's not meant for even that audience that really gets caught by the jump scares this is meant for those 10 to 13 maybe 14 year olds this is meant for that younger audience that's probably not even been used to or exposed to jump scares 
in in a horror film aspect like this and in, in something that fits into the actual horror genre not something animated not scooby-doo just this is actually and i would say it, it fits within the horror genre uh, there are deaths there are um you know characters that meet untimely ends so it's not like this is I mean, even I, I classify Goosebumps as fitting in horror, but really Goosebumps had no real-world consequences for any of the characters. All the characters kind of make it out alive. and um, But I still classify that as horror, but I would say it's it's more on the lower end of horror, and whereas Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark kind of fits more in the, in the higher... Uh, echelon kind of category where it's it's it crosses that threshold there there is character death there is some uh stabbing of a character and uh there is some not real real violence but there's some some violent moments um so it, it definitely checks boxes off for me and it fits as a horror and if you're an adult and you're trashing on this movie well, it's because it's it's not gear. It's not. I don't want to say certain phrases because that kind of goes against what I mean. But it's geared towards that younger audience. If you're someone who watches the Saw movies and Hostel and and all the very extreme gruesome ones, I mean, I watch them too. Yeah, you're not going to be kind of completely satisfied by this movie, but that's because it's not not geared to tell that type of story. Otherwise, they couldn't expose a younger audience to it. This is, this is creating a new generation of horror fans, just as much as the books did when I was growing up. So, in my opinion, if that succeeds, if more of the younger generation are kind of now getting more interested in these horror, in the horror genre, and seeing some of these great films that we've seen filmmakers put together, and, and end up launching careers off of, like Sam Raimi, Scott Derrickson, um, and, and careers for some actors, uh, like Brad Pitt and uh, Jennifer Aniston, uh, then it kind of leads some legitimacy to the genre. And that's one thing that I think horror fans are really good of accepting other horror fans. It's non-horror fans that really can't accept horror fans. And, and, and it's weird because when you, when you look at it, I mean, some of the nicest people I've ever known are huge horror movie fans. And so it doesn't, like... It doesn't compute for me. I don't understand it. I don't know why there's this kind of aspect of, well, if you like horror, you're a weirdo. Because, I mean, it, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit for me. I mean, it just, I've, these have been nice people. Now, yeah, you're going to run into the odd jerk here or there, but that's just life. Um, so I've been, you know, trying to expose uh, my friends that are not into horror to the horror genre or even if they've been interested in horror I've been trying to lead them in directions of going okay check out this movie check out that movie because uh, a lot of it I would also like to hear their reaction to like movies that made such an impact on me when I was growing up I mean Friday the 13th was the was probably the first legitimate horror film that I actually sat through and watched at a young age uh, and that's what kind of, when kind of the floodgates opened and I started running all the other Friday the Thirteenth set on VHS at Network Video, and then I moved on to Nightmare on Elm Street, then I moved on to Halloween, and 
and then even low budget like i mentioned in the previous episode of the podcast they've got a very high threshold for a tolerance of, of dealing with even low budget horror because it's just a genre that i find fun you're allowed to be creative in it. i mean you're allowed to be creative in other genres as well but there's something about horror that um i don't, I don't know i just there's something i find extremely creative about it uh and it can be derivative i mean you there have been movies and books and stories that kind of all kind of rip off of each other a little bit but like you you then get something like the uh like uh, final girls where it's kind of a meta slasher or you get something like hatchet by adam green you know you get these movies that kind of celebrate this history and uh kind of just and you've got these actors like robert england tony todd kane hodder heather langenkamp uh, you know, these guys then hold these mythic proportions, and that's why I love watching, uh, I, I need to do reviews on the uh, Never Sleep Again and Crystal Lake Memory documentaries, because those are amazing and require delving into, and if you haven't checked those out, I can't remember if they're still streaming on Shutter, but even if they're not, go out, buy them, watch them, it's great content, it's great to hear these actors talk about it, and how much respect that they still hold for these films. But, uh, yeah, if I did mention my score, but I'm going to re-mention it again. I think it's going to be a 4.5 out of 5. Um, I do have one more brief announcement before we go for the, the week. Uh, the, uh, there is a giveaway um, that's going to be coming up in, I think it's going to be this week. There's going to be an official announcement on Twitter. Um, I'm hoping that the podcast will be up and running on iTunes, um, so I think I'm going to give it a, a week uh, before I actually announce a winner, um, and that's, uh, I am going to be giving away a f- digital copy of, uh, of Avengers Endgame in celebration for the physical home release of the movie. Um, I have not done my review on it yet. That's because uh, I've got something special planned for that one. It's going to be more of a, a um, super long epi- uh, episode because it's going to have both uh, Infinity War and Endgame compiled uh, together on it. And um, so I think I'll announce the official rules for it once I know that the podcast is up on iTunes because uh, that's going to be part of what's going to be need to be done uh, to enter into the contest. Um, so uh, I look forward to officially officially announcing that on Twitter, hopefully uh, sometime this week. And uh, I think it'll be the twentieth or that the week of the twentieth because uh, I'm actually off work on that, and that's Tuesday. Uh, whatever the the Friday of the twentieth is will probably be the announce, announcement of the winner because um, it'll probably be this week when I announce the rules uh, and um, I can tell you that one part of it will be uh, sending an email to critics not cynics at gmail.com uh, and telling me who your favorite Avenger is or what your favorite uh, who your favorite Avenger is and why and, and or what is one of your favorite moments out of the MCU? And um, depending on how many are, um, are uh, 
submissions are in, they probably all will get read uh, on the podcast. Um, or you can send me a, a, a DM on, on Twitter with, with your um, with your entries. But that's going to be part of it. There, there's going to be more to it than just that. So uh, stay tuned for information, more information on that as it comes. Uh, if you're not following me on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at CriticsNTCynics. Uh, you can now also follow the podcast on Podbean or SoundCloud, and hopefully coming soon. I know I've been teasing it for a long time now. Uh, iTunes. So trust me, there will be probably a major Twitter announcement if it ends up on iTunes here shortly. So, all right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for this week, and we'll see you next time.